and now the real test is I want everybody to say the name of the molecule, starting with Jenny. What molecule are we talking about tonight, Jenny? Diphthalicophalan. One more time. One more time. <laughs> I I haven't actually heard this pronounced out loud before, so my interpretation. I don't think any of us have any idea how it really is supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> I really want to do this. I want to do this. Swap. Diphthalicophalan. Matt. Diphthalicophalan. <laughs> it's dife. Dife like Phelan. So can we just call it the big D? <laughs> the big D. No, I don't think we, we definitely cannot call it. We're not going to talk Dife about like giving people. Phelan. We're not giving our patients the D, okay? We're not doing <laughs> that. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the occasional podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC Journal Club. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. As Dr. Vardabedian says, we may be doctors on the internet, but we are not your doctors on the internet. This podcast discusses off-label indications and unlicensed medications. Hello. My name is Joel Toff, but most people know me better as my much cooler and better rested Twitter alter ego, Kidney Boy. Tonight, I am joined by Jenny. My name is Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University, and I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. Swapno. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. Go by Swap. I tweet at H. Swapnil, and I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Matt. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University, and I tweet at at nephro underscore sparks. Tonight on Freely Filtered, we'll be discussing diphthalicophalan, diphthalicophalan, <laughs> diphthalicophalan. As part of revealing our conflicts and interest, I'm a principal investigator on multiple CARA trials, including tonight's CALM-1 trial. Additionally, I participated in an advisory board where we got to see the results of this trial a few days before the announcement of the late-breaking and high-impact clinical trials at Kidney Week. One of the changes in medicine in general, and increasingly in nephrology, is an appreciation of patient-oriented outcomes. Medical research is catching up with humanism of medicine, which has always appreciated and valued the quality of life over the pure quantity of life. But recognition of patient-oriented outcomes, if it doesn't lead to novel treatment strategies and therapeutics designed to enhance these outcomes, is empty. This brings us to a unique and novel drug in the nephrology space. Therapeutics has a drug that is undergoing late-stage human trials that is designed to alleviate uremic pruritus. This drug does not improve mortality, does not avoid hospitalization. It doesn't make the labs look pretty. Its primary purpose is to alleviate one aspect of suffering that dialysis patients have to deal with. And maybe the strangest part of this story is how unusual that is. It is an indication of a field that has lost its way that a drug that is designed solely to relieve suffering appears as an anomaly in the landscape. But here we are. The drug in question is diphthalicophalan. <laughs> One of the natural opiate lig- ligands is kephalin. And I think that you're supposed to think of kephalin or ankephalin when trying to form the sound diphthalicophalan. <laughs> this drug began its life as an attempt to create a non-addictive opiate pain medication. And a lot of the early research looked at the likability of the drug as a way to gauge its abuse potential. The drug is intensely hydrophilic, so it can't penetrate lipids, so it is trapped in the peripheral nervous system. 
It did well in those studies, and there are a scattering of publications from the anesthesia literature looking at diphenylcaphalin. But a handful of years ago, the company turned from pain as the primary indication to pruritus, and specifically uremic pruritus. Tonight's study is the first phase three trial for the treatment of uremic pruritus. It is a straightforward trial, simple even. Patients with a high degree of uremic pruritus were randomized one-to-one to receive diphenylcaphalin, or matching placebo as an IV infusion at the end of dialysis. During 12 weeks of follow-up, the patients filled out itch evaluation scales, and the primary endpoint was the fraction of patients who had a maximal itch score that fell by at least three points. This ended up being 49% in the diphenylcaphalin group versus 28% with the placebo. The drug appeared well-tolerated. It looks like a solid base hit, but let's dig deeper. Swap, can you tell us about the methods? Yeah, so the um, again, to emphasize a couple of things, we do underestimate nephrologists, and it seems we do underestimate how uncomfortable itching is for our patients. There's a CJSN study from a couple of years ago where uh, one in five patients, you know, complained of itching as being extremely important for them. And like 70% of the medical directors underestimated what their patients were thinking about the itching. And it's been highlighted by the uh, song, uh, which is the standardized outcomes in nephrology uh, group uh, as a priority for research. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really nice that uh, people are taking this seriously and, and looking at problems that our patients think are important. Uh, the TLDR version of the methods, this is a fairly straightforward study. It's a phase three trial funded by industry, the company which made the like Fallon and a, a multi-center randomized control trial. Uh, patients had to be on hemodialysis, uh, prevalent hemodialysis patients with moderate to severe itching. They either got like Fallon intravenously at the end of dialysis or they got matching placebo. Uh, for uh, after every dialysis for 12 weeks and the outcome as Joel pointed out was a change in the uh, NHing scale uh, so that's like the simple Colts version of the trial but we can dig deeper um, the uh, still there is nothing really that I could find to fault though you know we can try to find out uh, and say a couple of things um, you start off with the author so you have uh, the first author is an academic guy uh, the others are uh, the of the other four authors, three are working for the industry, the company, and one is uh, for some research company, uh, which probably seems like a clinical uh, trials uh, or CRO kind of an organization. Now, some people say that this is not good, right? It's uh, the industry is doing the study and they are writing the paper. I think it's pretty honest. Uh, I don't find anything wrong with that. The study was done by industry. It's fair that they are presented as authors rather than, you know, hiding behind the scenes with a bunch of uh, ghost uh, authors. So I, I think I wouldn't fault them at all. Like this was a study designed by the industry. There was an academic author who seems to have been involved in the planning. So, so that's pretty legit. The uh, inclusion criteria. So uh, this was prevalent hemodialysis patients. They had to be on in-center hemodialysis for uh, at least three months, which is the standard definition for hemodi- uh, prevalent hemodialysis patients. They had to have moderate to severe itching, and it, this was on the basis of the WINRS scale, the worst itching kind of scale, which goes from one to ten, with ten being you know extremely severe, the worst itching you ever had in your life. No, it goes it goes from zero to ten. Sorry, zero. Yeah, zero to ten. Sorry, uh, and they had to have uh, uh, four or more, uh, which is considered as uh, moderate to severe itching, and they had to have four or more on the basis of uh, the scale that was filled by them 
every day for a week uh, during the run-in period as well as at the baseline visit. So it was a mean of, of all those. It was not just one scale that they filled out. Uh, that had to be four or more. So that was the, the main inclusion criteria. Now, I, and apart from that, uh, they had to be, uh, uh, the rest of the inclusion exclusion criteria are also reasonable. So patients had to have itching that was thought to be uremic in nature and, and not because of, you know, some other dermatologic condition. They had to have uh, a reasonably good quality of dialysis. So a single pool KT overview of more than 1.2 or a URR of more than 65%. They uh, should not, if they were on, they were allowed to be on antipyruritic medications, but they should not have had any changes done in the two weeks prior to you know, enrolling in the trial, which is also quite reasonable. Uh, they could not be on uh, UVB therapy. That was the only uh, exclusion. Otherwise, they could be on any other, you know, medications for uh, pruritus. Um, again, someone with a really um, a poor prognosis uh, or with dementia was excluded, which is also, you know, it, it this requires filling out a scale. So you needed someone who could understand what they were filling out. So that's also reasonable so the you know to me the inclusion exclusion criteria look pretty standard and and reasonable i don't know if you guys had any thoughts about it and were itching to say something yes yes uh, jenny um, i was asking about the teratogenicity and that was an exclusion criteria uh, that uh, uh, if uh, women were in the childbearing age they had to use or you know to be sure that they were not going to get pregnant uh, same thing with men and I'm not sure, uh, I don't know if Matt knows uh, or Joe knows if the drug is known to be teratogenic or is this one of those situations where they just don't know so they're playing it safe. And one exclusion criteria that was kind of interesting was that uh, if you had localized itch restricted to the palms of your hands, you could not be enrolled in the study. And, and uh, is that a way that uremic pruritus actually presents or is there a specific type of pruritus that's targeting? I don't know. Uh, maybe they wanted more generalized pruritus and perhaps hands would be perhaps contact or something. I have seen, um, again, this is a small segue, but in peritoneal dialysis patients who have um, a reaction to extranil, that's icodextrin, I've seen uh, a rash which is restricted to the hands, but that's, you know, PD and that's not hemo. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's a good uh, question um, and we'll see if someone else can find an answer to that. I presume otherwise it's, you know, more generalized pruritus that they were looking at. Um, so they got uh, the intervention. Uh, so patients who were eligible, who were randomized, got the intervention, which is diphalin uh, intravenously uh, at the end of dialysis or placebo at the end of dialysis for every session for 12 weeks. Uh, they were filling out these questionnaires as they went along. So that's why you have multiple questionnaires and, and you see the in the results you will see that there is a separation that comes up uh, right away. Uh, so that's because they are measuring it. It's sort of being measured at a, you know, on a, a continuous basis. Uh, they also did a couple of, uh, so the primary outcome was a change in the WINRS scale and they were looking for a change of three or more. Um, in, in between the groups. So the primary outcome is the proportion of patients who had a decrease, who had, I would say, let's call it successful uh, outcome. And the success was defined as a decrease in pruritus uh, in the scale by three. Uh, so that's the, the, the difference in that proportion was the primary outcome. In addition to that, they also looked at the 5DH scale, which looks at five dimensions of which the degree, duration, direction, disability, and distribution 
they also looked at something called the Skindex scale, uh, which has been developed specifically for uremic pruritus. And it looks at, you know, other stuff like uh, the emotions and emotional distress, social functioning. Uh, and that scale goes from 0 to 60. Um, and, and they had a bunch of safety outcomes, which is reasonable to look at. Uh, but they also looked at, because this is an opioid, they were looking at whether this drug has any opioid-like effects. So they had two ways of looking at, looking at that. There was a subjective and an objective way of measuring. The subjective way was that patients were uh, filling out the short opioid withdrawal scale uh, when they finished the therapy. Uh, and in addition to that, the, um, uh, the, a trained observer filled out something called as the objective opioid withdrawal scale, which looks at 13 signs of uh, withdrawal. Uh, again, this was um, done after the 12-week uh, period was done what was finished yeah there was a two-week washout when they were looking for this uh uh signs of a physical uh dependence mm-hmm. so again that's completely reasonable uh, to try to make sure that these uh, this drug doesn't have an opioid like effect uh, they were looking at uh, for, for power analysis they needed 350 patients to look at a 15 to 20 percentage point difference assuming that the response in the placebo group would be about 30 percent and, and after 50% of the patients were recruited, so of 350, let's say about 175, they did an interim analysis just to make sure that, uh, you know, they were on track and the trial didn't have to be stopped for futility or, you know, for success, uh, which I guess it was not. So it, it went on and completed. The analysis, the analytic plan is pretty well laid out and, and I really can't find anything um, wrong with that. It's a, it's a standard, uh, pretty plain vanilla uh, kind of analytic plan. That's all I had to say on the methods. And, and again, I don't know how the placebo was different. And we are missing our capsulology expert today. So I don't know if the, you know, how, how the molecules look differently. Or I don't know. Maybe you know, Joel. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an injection given at the end of uh, dialysis. So it's just, you know, I don't think, uh, I'm not sure if there's a lot to the placebo. They, uh, so, no, I don't, I don't know. I think, I don't know anything specific. There is an oral version of the drug, apparently. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, he, he, Stephen Fishbane mentioned because people were asking about PD and, and other um, populations, and he said they are developing or they have just developed an oral version. Right. So, in fact, a couple of weeks after Kidney Week, early in December, uh, they announced results from the oral drug, and it was not as impressive as the results were seen in Calm One. This is uh, for dialysis related itching? Uh, CKD. Because I saw if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, they have trials for atopic dermatitis. They have trials for cirrhosis, uh, cholestatic pruritus. I was really hoping it worked for poison ivy, which is something that has plagued me for my whole life. <laughs> and I could not find anything. You can't, you can't just identify poison ivy and stay away from it? <laughs> I have an intense... If someone touched the plant... And then came near me, I would get it. Wow. I, I have a, I can't even go anywhere near a campsite or anything like that. And, and I have walked like down like a trail and I will be right in the very middle touching nothing. And I'll walk out with poison ivy. Wow. <laughs> Why don't you just and stay I in the concrete jungle? That's <laughs> like a failing. I don't, I don't think, I don't think this is, that's not one of the indications they're looking for. They need to, to switch to that area. It's painful. Okay. Do we have anything else on the, the I mean, I, I, I mean, I think. I, I do the, have a question about 
it is a kappa agonist, right? Mm -hmm. Pure kappa agonist with no beta arrestin signaling at all. And um, morphine, codeine, hydrocodone all have kappa agonist activity and mu agonist where you get a lot of the pain. What about uh, if a patient takes um, narcotic and is on this? Is it... it, is it not enough agonists to, to have an effect above and beyond what, the, what those other drugs do? Or do we know that? It was not an exclusion criteria, was it? People could be on narcotics. Am I right on that? Yeah, people could be on narcotics. Yeah, but would those people even meet the baseline, you know, for, in terms of the itch score, if they were already somehow getting treated? Well, you know I wouldn't say they're, they're on those medications for itching. They were on it for another reason. Right, right. Maybe I guess they wouldn't have as much itching. So they yeah, were so they, so they were excluded if there was a new or change in prescription for opioids within 14 days prior to screening. So they have new to be on a stable they have to be on a stable dose, but if they're on a stable dose they were cool. Mm-hmm. And if they had a allergy to opioids such as hives, not like you know constipation or anything, which are known side effects, they were excluded. So it's also, it's almost like, you know, it's fine to be on opioids as far as they were concerned. Hey, has any of you guys, you know, one of the most effective therapies for this is um, UVB light. Has anybody ever prescribed patients for UVB light? No. I haven't done it. I think I they have to do it pretty see. frequently. I think it's a pretty intense therapy to undergo. And I think for a dialysis patient who's already got getting, you know, 12 weeks, 12 hours of uh, therapy a week, it's a big ask. And itching is one of the worst side of one of the worst things you can you can have, and I know this personally. So uh, when I see itching, I'll do anything to try to stop it, except for UVB light, apparently. Poison ivy in general. Yeah, yeah. I've tried UVB light with my poison ivy, and no such luck. Well, I mean, it's I guess it's the availability, right? How how do you get hold of uh, UVB light? Uh, it's called the sun. <laughs> is that enough? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they had uh, uh, the. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but adding food. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, Jenny, Jenny, <laughs> uh, I think there's there are some results for this trial. You want to tell us about the results? Yeah. So, big picture, uh, when compared to the placebo arm, more patients in the drug arm had a decrease of at least three points in the itch score. Uh, which was the primary outcome, just to remind you. Uh, this came at the expense, though, of more side effects in the treatment group, and these included diarrhea, dizziness, and vomiting. And that's com- more people experienced those compared to the people in the placebo arm. Now, we were to get a little bit more granular. Um, 378 patients were enrolled in the study, 189 patients in each arm. Uh, 27 patients in the drug group ended up discontinuing the treatment due to adverse events and withdrawal of consent. And this is a larger number than in the placebo group, which only had 18 patients drop out. Now, the baseline characteristics of the trial participants are in table one, and they were mostly evenly matched. The majority of them were male with and about 40% black in each group. Uh, They had a dialysis vintage of about five years uh, in each group as well. A few things to note, uh, slightly more patients in the drug arm had diabetes. Uh, 38% in the treatment arm also had a baseline use of, had more, more people had baseline use of antipruritic medication. 
Um, oh, sorry. No, only 38% in the treatment arm had baseline use of antiprotic medication and more in the placebo arm did. Um, and so this actually corresponds to a slightly higher baseline itch score in the placebo arm as well, and the more use of uh, diphenhydramine or Benadryl. So in terms of the primary outcome, which was a reduction of at least three points from the baseline in the worst itchiness scale, uh, the pa- percentage of patients who reached the primary outcome was significantly greater in the diphenhydramine group. That's a difference of 49.1% in the treatment group versus 27.9% in the placebo group. And this amounts to a relative risk of 1.65 with a significant confidence interval and a p-value of less than 0.001. And in figure one of the paper, uh, panel A, you can see a bar graph uh, representing this. And the change in itch scores over time is represented by a beautiful Kaplan-Meier curve in figure two. This result is seen in those who took anti-itch medications at baseline and then those who did not. And these results are represented in panel B, although for some reason for panel B, p-values were not calculated or presented. Yeah, so the primary outcome results um, also held through the sensitivity analyses, uh, which included accounting for early discontinuation of the drug. And one thing to note, and maybe we can get into more of this in the discussion, is 28% of folks in the placebo arm reported a decrease in pruritus, and is that considered a strong placebo effect? Um, I'm not sure. It's interesting taking a look at the the KM curves. Like, do you agree when you look at that KM curve, it looks like the diphalecophalin, their, their change from baseline is continuing to fall even at week 12. Well, it looks like mm-hmm. the placebo group really kind of bottoms out by six or seven weeks, and that is pretty flat. Yeah, and and you kind of wonder if a longer study would have shown. Right. I mean, it looks like the difference in the diphenylacophalin group at eight weeks and 12 weeks, it doesn't look like those confidence intervals overlap. It may a little bit, but it does seem like it's still falling. Who's that? Someone, someone else joining? Yeah, Baman. Oh, okay. Who's cool. that? Yeah, so I, I, I tweeted oh. out I tweeted out the link and I invited people to watch us create the podcast. Oh, awesome! Oh, cool. All yeah. right, welcome. Good response. <laughs> yeah. Twitter is very effective. <laughs> One <That's> person. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> very effective. Very effective. Yes. Well, hello and welcome. Welcome, welcome Owen. All right. Robin, can, can you uh, pronounce the drug? No, he's he's well, muted. I don't know. Well, okay. Yeah. Pavan, we've unmuted you, so you can uh, say, see if you can say the name of the drug. No, I can't see. Hello. Hello, we can yeah, hear we you. We can hear you. Okay, th- I'm trying this for the first time, so I'm sorry for. Uh, it's all right. This is our third time. Dicofycophalin. Dicofycophalin. Oh, you 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 would like fit that. right in with this group. You would fit right in. <laughs> it's very generalizable. Cool. <laughs> you like come that? on, come on, go for it, Joe. Yeah, generalizability. <laughs> oh, wow. like you a have, yeah, yeah, I have it. mastered it. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm no longer, I no <laughs> longer have that speech impediment. Okay, Pavan, I'm putting you back on mute. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, okay. So, for secondary outcomes, there was a significantly higher percentage of patients in the treatment group who had over a four point improvement in the itchiness scale. And there was a significant reduction also in the 5D itch score and the Skindex 10 score at week 12. 
In terms of adverse events, uh, there was a slightly higher rate of adverse events during the 12-week intervention period, including events that led to discontinuation, um, and this was for the treatment group. Uh, Most of these were gastrointestinal in nature, diarrhea, vomiting. Some also experienced more dizziness. And during the two-week discontinuation period, it was kind of interesting that there were actually more adverse events in the placebo group uh, related to falls and diarrhea. Um, Among all the participants, though, there was a relatively low rate of serious adverse events, uh, which are listed in the supplement. The most common adverse events uh, were hyperkalemia, pneumonia, sepsis, and fluid overload. And three patients in the placebo group and none in the treatment group suffered from septic shock. About in the supplement, um, the authors also present the opioid withdrawal scale. And um, remember, the drug does target the peripheral opioid receptor, so there was concern that there would be some uh, withdrawal symptoms, but there were no significant differences between groups um, per the graph in the supplement. Okay, Matt. Oh, I, I don't know the answer to this. I'm, I'm right now feverishly Googling it. What is the uh, pattern of kappa opioid receptors in the gut? Anybody know that? No, I don't. No. <laughs> okay. So is, is it like a gut effect or is it a central effect? The, the nausea? Well, it, is, it doesn't go into the brain. So I was just curious, you know, the diarrhea. Why the, why the diarrhea? Yeah, those sort of things. And so with, and, the oral, with the oral drug, when they were testing it for pain control, there was they had they put a hold on the study because there was increased rates of hypernatremia, and one of the known effects of these kappa receptors is listed as um, as diuresis. Nothing. Uh, oh, so diuresis. Diuresis with kappa receptor agonists. You mean like diarrheuresis? Like, no, 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 not diarrhea. No, <laughs> like aquaresis. No, water, no. water. It oh, looks like it's an aquaresis. Yeah, it's some kind of. I it, thought you mean like. There's this. You know, there's the these two, two organs in the retroperitoneum. I'm not sure you're familiar. They're called kidneys. <laughs> I thought we're talking about the gut here. Diarrhea. No, I, That's a yeah, I gut. had I had my own little factoid that I was holding out. And I was you know I had a little hypernatremia pearl. You know, not doesn't I come into play it. in the in the dialysis population. But if we use this in CKD, it may be something to keep an eye on. They were all asymptomatic. Their sodiums got up to 150. I think it was like three or four patients. No problem. Stop the drug. Sodium came back down. Asymptomatic hypernatremia. Well, I guess I'll have to watch out for my itching from poison ivy. Yeah, drink a big glass of water when you take your diphenylphalan. Diphenylphalan. <laughs> diphenylphalan. Diphenylphalan. You're sticking to that diphenylphalan. I'm going to stick to it forever. Do you know what the trade name is going to be? Yeah, it's announced. Hold on. Itch be gone. Yeah, that's a that's a really good idea. <laughs> what do you guys think about? This? Did you see what the phosphorus was? Uh, the average phosphorus for the people who had this hot, moderate to severe itching. What do you think it was? Five and a half. It was exactly five and a half. <laughs> I, that's not fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> So happy to be back. The the uh, but the only forty percent of them were on antipruritic medications, and uh, it was mostly you know antihistamines. Well, that's um, what the only ones that they listed. They didn't even include gabapentin as an anti. Right? Then when they went through the types of anti itch, it was all anti 
Right um, here, I'm trying to find that where that table yeah, they, was. Yeah, they didn't uh, list gabapentin. Diphenhydramine, hydroxazine, hydrocortisone, triamcinolone, ammonium lactate, and loratadine were the only ones that they considered uh, as most commonly used. I guess they're most commonly used. I've got breaking news. Breaking news? The trade name is Corsova. Corsuva. Corsuva. I would have said Diphecophalin. Corsuva. It's kind of a soothing. Be less awkward to say on rounds, I guess. Have you given Corsuva? CR845 is really the best one that they have yet. Yeah, but Corsuva is not bad. All right, here's a quiz. When Gleevec was first uh, being tested, what was the name sort of like CR whatever? Anyone know that without Googling it? So which company was Gleevec again? STI571. Okay. What about uh, Sinacalcet? Don't know. AMG073. Wow, useless facts. This is why rounding with me is very painful. <laughs> well, and the most famous one of all is Tacrolimus, right? FK506. That one stuck. That yeah. one stuck, yeah. Hey, sorry. So go back to gabapentin. I'm not done with gabapentin. So uh, so, so you mean to say that some patients were on gabapentin? It, they just didn't bother to list it? Because I found it very surprising that no one was on gabapentin. I don't, I don't like the drug. I think it causes a lot of side effects, but it, we do use it, not infrequently. Well, we, we, there was a comprehensive review of antipyrotic medications that we covered in, I think, in 2017 in NFJC. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion from that study was the best thing that you can offer patients was, <laughs> was, uh, was gabapentin. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, think that, you, I think there are some tweets that you had, Swap, about this. Yes, exactly. So I was, I'm, I'm trying to be restrained about this, but still, uh, uh, how come, you know, was it just chance that no one was on gabapentin or is it just missing data? And they could be on it. They just couldn't, it's like the opioids, they couldn't be on it, like within a new right. prescription within right. four so, so obviously they're looking for it because they mentioned it in the inclusion exclusion criteria that, you know, they could be on gabapentin, but it doesn't mention it in table one. So what I'm is looking it? I'm I'm looking through the uh, it's what's it called the supplement. No, I I did a I did a control F uh, for gabapentin and only found it in the exclusion criteria and yeah. pregaba gabapentin pregabalin lyrica pregabalin it was an exclusion criteria so, not no they couldn't they couldn't adjust the dose it was yeah. an exclusion criteria they right. just oh they just couldn't adjust, adjust the dose yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they knew about this they knew that these drugs are important so they should have put that in table one they must have missed our NFJC. Seems likely. Yeah, but in the in the chat, uh, Steve Fishbane uh, was there, and I think we asked him, and he said, yeah, it was surprising no one was on gabapentin. So I... Oh, so he says no one was on it. Yeah, but it was kind of an offhand comment. It would be nice so, to have that piece of data in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, or at least, you know, in the discussion or something. And especially with the high number of diabetics, that surprises me. Remember, it was that was the di- that cause of their kidney disease purported to be from diabetes. Didn't actually say how many had diabetes. Yeah, it does. Diabetes, 90, 50% of patients have the placebo and 57%. I thought it says cause of oh, kidney cause of, I'm sorry, you're right. But then they have to have diabetes, right? <laughs> well, example. right. So but they could have more. It's at least that. It's at least yeah. that. Unless they've since subsequently had a pancreas transplant and no longer have diabetes. Okay, now we're <laughs> bariatric surgery. <laughs> they could have um, had GN and had diabetes. 
Yeah, I did find his tweet. He said, very uncommon use at baseline. Don't know why GABA patients were definitely eligible. So he does say that it was not used. Maybe it was working. Yeah, yes, oh, if the drug is not they, they didn't right. meet the itch score. They didn't yeah. meet their itch score. Meet the criteria with itch. Yeah, they, now they need to do a non-inferiority trial, right? <laughs> no, they don't. No. <laughs> you don't want to give a PI for that study tool. And the thing is, I don't think it's gabapentin. no, because I don't want to. I don't want to subject my patients to a lot of gabapentin, right? Like it's it's right. a drug we know has a lot of side effects in our dialysis population. And is it approved, or is it when we use it, is it off label no. that we use it? No, yeah. but I gave that exclusion in the. Uh, I give that that disclaimer when we talk. We started this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. I said uh, we're going to talk about unlicensed, right? Uh, right, but that's why they don't need to test it against gabapentin, right? Because gabapentin right. doesn't even have the indication. Well, neither. I mean. Yeah. I feel like Phelan doesn't either. <laughs> it's good. I mean, but, yeah. so that's the point, right? They're not obligated to test it. It's just like the right. uh, the potassium resins. They didn't test it against SPS because, you know, SPS is like, oh, it doesn't have strong data, so why bother? So um, one of the other therapies that's supposed to be good is gamma linolenic acid. It's a cream that you put on. It's supposed to be, uh, I was reading it was one of the better treatments for your paritis. It's a fatty substance found in various plant seed oils, such as borage oil and evening primrose oil. People use it as medicine. Yeah, evening primrose oil is is popular. Um, the the other sorry, the other cream we uh, often use is a it's a cocktail of uh, hydrocortisone, camphor, and menthol. Um, and and uh, one of my uh, more senior colleagues suggested that, and it seems it's. It's got a lot of placebo effect because maybe the hydrocortisone has some effect, but the camphor gives it a very strong smell. Uh, and the menthol, uh, you know, it, it sublimates or whatever, so it, it gives a cooling, uh, soothing effect. Um, so that's something I've used in desperate situations. Well, and I, no, I think, look how good the placebo is. Like you're, you're going to get a nice 30% reduction, or 30% of people get in a three-point reduction yeah. with just giving them anything. I was going to have a, a Hawthorne effect drinking game. <laughs> I have not word? used that word. <laughs> Anytime Swap says Hawthorne effect, everyone has to drink. I mean, Diet, Diet Coke, that's what we're drinking. <laughs> Regression to mean. Regression to the mean. I mean, that's what, you know. But yeah, the, yeah. Is it the placebo effect or just regression to the mean? But so, if you measure something over and over again, it will. Yeah. So Matt, maybe for your poison ivy, we can just give you saline. That if it's in work. a study and you keep asking me how the itch is, <laughs> it will probably get better. But it's, you know, it'll, it's a bad itch with the poison ivy. I don't even think you realize. If my mom is listening, she'll know. <laughs> we can only hope your mom is listening. Um, I mean, literally the only person uh, listening Con, to our. I will drive you out to Pinnacle Mountain. It is basically a big mountain of poison ivy, I believe. <laughs> I ended up in the ER. This sounds like I... the world's worst state park. It's like, what's wrong <laughs> with you, Arkansas? Do not have a state park full of poison ivy. Just burn that thing down. I, I ended up in the ER. We're really going to pack them in this year. We should just rename it to Poison Ivy Thon. <laughs> what, what do you think about that phosphorus of 5.5? Average, average phosphorus for the people with the worst. Um, itching, moderate to severe itching, only 5.57 is what I get. 
they're, they're pretty good patients. That's pretty good, right? We'll talk to Miles Wolf about phosphorus, and he, and he says in every uh, baseline characteristic study, the phosphorus that we're talking about, yes, 5.5. It's always 5.5. It's always 5.5. Oh. That's why I said 5.5. I was pretty, I was impressed. Um, I'll go back to my corner now. It was really. Your corner poison ivy. I would have expected people who have the worst itching to have a worse phosphorus than 5.5, even though that's apparently the baseline in every study. So we're done with uh, uh, methods. We're done with results. Uh, Anybody have any comments, any bit of wisdom they want to talk about with this study? I would say I'm pretty excited about it. This is, I mean, it's a definitely a big problem. We need new things to try and to help patients that are suffering from this. So, and it looks like the side effect profile is not that bad. So I thought it was really great to see this. Yeah. And it, you know, it does target the proposed pathophysiology of uremic pruritus, meaning that there's a thought that it's more neurogenic as opposed to being driven by histamines. Um, so uh, that may play into why something like gabapentin works better than antihistamines um, and whether or not uremic toxins are really activating these receptors and um, they're affecting the nerves and also promoting an immune response. So I think actually this drug also targets receptors on more than just the neurons there was like something about receptors on immune cells as well. I'll have to look a little bit more into that. But I saw in that case, too. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, so it might be like attacking the problem from two different angles, which is kind of cool. Um, but what I was surprised, but well, I guess I'm not surprised, but a little bit disappointed by is that we don't actually have a lot of scientific data looking at what the mechanisms are for these symptoms. So it is interesting that we're kind of like throwing a dart, choosing a therapy to test and uh, without having a very solid understanding of um, the pathophysiology we're trying to treat, even though it is you know, one of the symptoms. Yeah, I mean, in the, with, the, with the symptoms, sorry, with the symptoms, it's uh, uh, one of the essays on itching that I really have um, liked is uh, by Atul Gavande in the New Yorker. It's called Itch. It's just called itch, and it starts off. It, it's a you know he's a great writer, of course. So he, he's got a bunch of narratives in there, but it starts off with this uh, lady who was you know scratching her scalp, and uh, she was scratching and scratching, and something liquid came out, um, and it was her brain. What What did you say it was? She scratched through her scalp, through her skull, through her dura, and it was her her brain. That's definitely a lot of itch. Yeah. yeah. Just she scratched all the... And then he goes through the, you know, the fact that we don't understand the symptoms and, and why someone gets itch. Like this person had nothing else. And, and uh, you know, talking about the mirror therapy stuff and some very cool stuff. But it's it's just something we don't understand. Well, but again, going back to this uh, study specifically, I, I agree uh, with you, Jenny, that, you know, they went, they followed the mechanisms and it, they followed the science. Trying and, to figure out if mice itch from... CKD models. The um, itch, uh, uremic pruritus has been associated with poor quality of life, and they were able to show improved quality of life in this study, right? It's also associated with depression, anxiety, sleep disturbance, and there was a poster at Kidney Week showing that, uh, uh, I think it was only an eight-week trial of diphenylphenidine improved sleep in patients that had this disturbance. So 
you know, it's interesting to start thinking that if you can relieve this symptom, you may be able to have some interesting downstream effects uh, that may reverberate throughout the patient's life. Yeah, I think when someone's itching to the point where nothing you try helps, then their entire life is affected in a negative way. I would have liked to see a subgroup. Let, show me the, show me the patients with uh, their their itch scale of uh, nine and ten or eight, nine and ten. Show me the worst of the worst, and I want to see if is the drug more effective in the itchiest of the itchiest, or is it less effective compared to placebo? Because my sense is uh, there are some people that get in here that don't have severe itching, right? You, you always have this bell curve of patients that are going to acquire. And I bet the drug works the best. The patients have the most purest uremic paritis, right? Well, I think not, that's you know, where what, um, as Jenny was talking about, the mechanism. Yeah. Maybe the, the patients that have severe itch, you try the drug. If it really does target the mechanism of uremic paritis, it should work. And if not, you need to look at other alternative causes of itch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't work 100%, right? So, so maybe there's something else which is causing the itch in the other people. It's exciting to see people paying attention to a, an area that's been you know, largely ignored. Like when we did that uh, review in AJKD, you know, I think the average study size was like 50 patients. Like, you know, having people really go out and do a a sizable study is, it's important. Um, The other, and then they're doing, they're rerunning CALM 1 in Europe now. I don't know if it's called CALM 2, but essentially they're doing the same study, different population, because they need a couple of studies to get through the FDA. So I'm looking back at our, um, just scratch the itch. And just to clarify that, it was AJKD article. And they did a search of all the different studies that met the criteria to talk about itching and CKD and dialysis. It turned out there was 44 studies, most of which were pretty small, it looked like. Yeah, I mean, the gabapentin was the best, but it was still pretty poor quality data, even for gabapentin. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. Gabapentin was the best, and it wasn't that great. And I don't think we need to belabor the point. I don't think we have much more to say about the study. We, th- we think it's a good study. We think it's an important topic. We think it's pretty well executed. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot to talk about it because it's just well done. I mean, the drug is probably going to be, excuse me, expensive. It's going to be intravenous. Uh, but we should reward efforts from industry where, you know, they are trying to find a solution for a genuine problem and doing the right studies and having the right you know, effects. So despite me being the skeptic, you know, socialist, communist guy, I think you should reward industry for doing the right thing. You will not see it in Canada for at least a decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the downside. And and do we know all that, uh, you know, bundling and all that? I don't understand it, but will new drugs are typically outside the bundle, right? Yeah, they get excluded from the bundle for, I think it's one or two years and the one um, Parsibiv is the one that's the kind of the first drug in the new bundle era that I think they've gotten a, 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 a delay where they've gotten kind of a, a stay of execution where they're going to be able to stay out of the bundle a little bit longer. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm sure they're intensely looking at what's happening with, uh, with Parsibiv. But um, yeah, that's how, that's how we are here. Okay. Um, that concludes the glomerular filtrate portion of uh, our uh, podcast.
podcast. And now we're on to the um, tubular secretion. Does uh, Swapnil, do you have anything for tubular secretion? Um, let me think about it while the rest of you talk. Matt, what do you have for tubular secretion? I'm going to secrete a really nice conference. You might have heard of it. It's called KidneyCon. And trainees, you have until February 1st. If Joel can get this uh, podcast uh, edited up by then, it'll be a really cool conference this year. We've extended it by one day. We have a complete day AKI uh, symposium. We'll have a hands-on cooking demonstration from the cooking doc. We will have bowling with the Nephrology Social Media Collective. Truly always going to be a fun event. You can actually watch Kidney Boy Bowl. It's a sight to see. (laughs) (laughs) Then the next day, go to his acid base. We also have a really cool thing. Who wants to learn how to spin urine and make those beautiful pictures like Jay Seltzer? You want to do that, right? I want to do that. You can Mm -hmm. come and do that and learn to use those fancy stains. And uh, it's like when you see the first, not the first, I guess, after they fix the Hubble telescope the third or fourth time, that's what his look like. Mine look like the very first Hubble telescope photos. <laughs> Worry. Uh, I'll even post them on Twitter because you don't even want to look at them. But that's going to be really fun. We have a transplant symposium. Uh, we have one on membranous that's going to really be interesting and dive into some of the new areas in membranous. It's three days long. Uh, it's really fun. You get to hang out with a lot of fun people. Uh, join in in all, all of the activities. So uh, get your application in. And if you're not a trainee, this is for everyone. We want to see program directors there. We want to see associate program directors there. This is where the next generation of nephrologists will be. So you got to come. Now, is there going to be a, uh, an eclipse, a solar eclipse while we're there? I think we were successful in moving the rotation of the earth by uh, several degrees a few years back. And that is not going to happen. That's not, there's not going to be slow. Okay. Okay. Just checking. We tried, we tried that, but it just could not make it happen. (laughs) And then what is, what is um, martinis, meatballs and mentoring? So that is a party at John Arthur's house. Who's the director of kidney con. And he and his family actually make all of the food for this party at their house and it's just a really fun time to get together and talk it's, about. It's what just happened. for the faculty, right? It's not for all, everybody who goes to the conference. If you're there, you can go. Everybody can go to this. If you're still there that, that night, we will sneak you in. I'll personally do that. You don't need to sneak yeah. in. Everybody's invited. Everybody's invited. John, Ar- John Arthur party. opens his house. It's an opens absolute mansion. He lets and the, there are uh, calls off the Dobermans. He lets the butlers go home. And he makes the martinis himself. He yeah. does. He makes the martinis himself. It's an incredible amount of work. And they're good mar- martinis, real gin martinis, none of this vodka stuff. And I think, I think there's a non-alcoholic drink if you don't, if you don't like to partake. And there's, uh, there's vegetarian meatballs too. So, and, and the mentoring, that's the key aspect is just to get to know people at a level that you would not get at Kidney Week. Uh, three four days outside activities, the hiking up Pinnacle, the trip to the ER with Nephrosparks. I mean, who would, who wouldn't want to do that? Okay. Jenny, are okay. you going to go this year? Jenny, if you yeah. say you have to move your lab again, we'll know that you were lying <laughs> last time. <laughs> <laughs> 
She's still she's still thinking. I'm gonna, <clears throat> I'm gonna take the fifth on that. You didn't accept my workshop. Yeah, well, we we it was a great workshop, but I I fear it would have been me and you in that room. I would have loved it. I mean, I I think we we need that. We just couldn't make it happen. Sorry. Next time, yeah. next year. You win some, you lose some. Jenny, do you have a, a, a proximal tubular secretion? Yeah, so um, I guess starting right now, I am a member of the Career Advancement Committee of the ASN. And I just wanted to invite anyone who's um, you know has any thoughts about what we could be doing to kind of help uh, you with networking, what we could be doing to address any sort of career development issues in nephrology, whether you're early career, mid-career, um, if you're in academics, private practice, I know that there are different issues, but there are people who are representing all the different um, parts of nephrology. And I think there are also um, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants also on this committee as well. So um, in terms of wherever you are and however you're contributing to the field of nephrology, if there are specific issues that you think uh, should be addressed or could be improved upon, uh, please feel free to DM me um, on Twitter, or you can also email me at my Northwestern account. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And, and what's that email? So you can email me at my Northwestern account. It's and we'll put in show notes, uh, J-E-N-N-I-E dot L-I-N at Northwestern dot E-D-U. Nice. And you can also uh, direct message me on Twitter. Did Swapnil, did you, oh, you were, you were having to think. Yeah, yeah I have, I have thinking. So I have, I have something. So uh, um, guess who said this on Twitter? We all know him or her. Life is a procession of chaos. When it brings clouds, I often look to words to clear my sky. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Donald Trump. No, we, we know this person, all of us. It's, it's uh, Tom Oates. It's a guy called Tom Oates, who's a nephrologist. And I think we work in London or some place like that. A guy called Tom, Tom Oates. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, so he, he started on, on Christmas. He said, uh, I'm going to tweet uh, poems that he's read. Uh, now he's a, uh, he, a few years ago, I remember he talked about some author called Don DeLillo, and that was the first and the last time I heard that name, uh, but apparently he's a very famous and good writer. So anyway, he's got, Tom is, every day he's uh, quoting a poem and uh, with uh, pictures of the poetry, and I recognize Shakespeare, but I don't think I recognize any of the others, but it seems pretty interesting. He's on day nine right now with the... Uh, Millie on I being born a woman. It's fascinating. It's more fun than, you know, there are no GIFs involved. Tom loves GIFs. So if you, if you see this thread, please reply to him with your favorite GIF. I have just unmuted him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. Well, what do you do when you have a patient who te- says, I've got this intense pruritus? Do you, do you send them to what is it called Patriots Mountain? What do you call that mountain? And try to get them like, uh, try to get them with poison ivy to try to, you know, uh, pinnacle, mountain. Pinnacle, pinnacle mountain, right? Kill kill poison with poison. Yeah, yeah right. It's a very homeopathy type yeah, of thing you, to do. Do you dilute the, the dilute it in the, water or something? It's like you think you're itching. Come 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 with me to Mount Pinnacle. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I have a I, I give I start with the uh, emollients and moisturizers. 
try to make sure their skin is as healthy as possible and as moist as possible. Then I usually go to, uh, I give a trial of antihistamines. I figure there's a good placebo effect there. See if we can get the, an improvement there. And then, and then after that, I, I do use gabapentin as my third line agent. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Um, you, you tell them not to use a very gentle soap um, to decrease the dryness of the skin, which is a major problem. And I've, um, I, uh, I never use baclofen. Matt, do you ever use baclofen for uh, uremic pruritus? <laughs> yeah, I, I have not. And I, think I it hope it will no work. I, I'm pretty sure it will work. If anyone on this podcast is still using Baclofen, please send me a DM and I will deliver pens each week to your home. <laughs> it's, it's like HelloFresh, but for Baclofen pens. <laughs> you get a box of Baclofen pens every twice a week. Um, but I've had page, I we've been using this stuff and it, it, I mean, it, it does work and patients have, you know, really, really like uh, the drug. And I've had patients transfer from units that are not doing the study to other dialysis units that are doing the study so they can get, they can enroll in the study. And then you yeah, just hope to God. It's, it's an open label uh, continuation, right? Now, well, yeah. Um, yeah. Now it's not, we're not enrolling anybody now. But for okay. when we were enrolling patients, people were, I would tell them, well, we don't have this drug here, but there's a pretty decent drug there and you have at least a 50% chance of getting on it. But now that it's over, is it? Uh, they can't, they, the patients, patients can't get the drug. I saw on, on, on clinicaltrials.gov an extension. Yeah, they, yeah but, the, but the, the, even, even the 52-week extension's over. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, that's that, yeah. Over. Okay. and I think for us, we're even done with the CKD trials. Uh, happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to uh, 2020. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, trying to get uh, uh, this. Is, this is going to be, I think this is number 10. This is our 10th podcast. Uh, we started hey, hey. last May and we'll try to average uh, one a month going forward. We'll see how that goes. Uh, thank you guys for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. <laughs>